Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining the Move Podcast. I'm your host, Scotty Carlisle, and today, guess what? We have a special guest. I don't know if you've heard in the other shows, but we have a lot of special guests on the show. If you're not a special guest, you're not going to be on the show. But today is an important very important conversation and we have I think one of the best people that I could be talking to to have this conversation and thank you Casey for introducing me to Brandon Reed the whole concept for move is M make a difference oh to offer up your time, talent, and gifts. B, there's victory in the small things, and E, to encourage others. And so I started to move. Brandon, thank you for coming on the Move Podcast. Absolutely. Pleasure to have you. So what I want to do is maybe, if you can, Brandon, can you... Can you give me a little introduction of who is Brandon Reed? Yeah. Uh, so Brandon Reed is a 34-year-old man who lives in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, I um, currently work for a nonprofit, a criminal justice nonprofit that works with um, individuals who have served extended periods of time in prison. So I deal with them once they're released. Um, I also am a recovering heroin addict. I've been sober almost uh, eight years this year. Wow. So eight years. Almost, yep. How long How long were you going through that bout? I was in active addiction, I would say, from about 10 years, from about 17 to 20, 27, 28, something like that. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my little brother had gone through, had gone through that. He had experimented with a lot of different, a lot of different drugs, including mm-hmm. meth and, you know, you name it. And... He had a, a short stint with heroin, and he was, he said, that was the most god awful recovery process that he's ever had in his life. That a lot of times he just lay there and just want to die. Mm-hmm. Uh, did yeah. you have well, a similar? Had, uh, yeah, yeah, very similar experience. So I actually had uh, similar to your brother. I mean, I, I tried every drug. I actually had probably a couple of years where meth was my primary drug as well. I flip flopped. So wow, and and eight years you've been clean. Up everything. Wow. Congratulations, man. Thanks. So, well, let me ask you, when you were doing that, when you were doing, when you were experimenting, you had uh, any other run-ins or did it negatively affect your life in any other way besides the fact that you were on, you know, suffering and, and that you needed to have some type of a crutch to survive and that kind of stuff? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I got, um, yeah, so it sent me to prison four different times. Um, so I actually caught my first felony when I was 18 years old. Um, and then, uh, from there I subsequently caught another one when I was 21. Um, so I was involved in the criminal justice system for uh, 10 years as well. Um, so yeah, so that was, that was pretty rough. <laughs> so you were involved in the criminal justice system on the opposite side as, as self- the offender, as yeah. the offender. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I was not a good criminal. 
<laughs> is there so yeah, I guess there is such thing, but I don't know for how long. Sure, sure. Well well, Brandon, I wanted to talk to you because you know, Casey told me a little bit about your story and, and how mm-hmm. you have definitely gone through some some shit in your mm-hmm. life and but now you have basically been able to use those situations and things that have happened to you and really push yourself and propel yourself in a forward direction to help other people. And, yeah, yeah. and so I guess, you know, there, there's a few things I wanted to talk to you about. Um, one of them was, you know, we political look, there's a big issue with politics right now. There's a, there's a big issue. There's a big separation. Would you agree? I would, yeah, I would firmly agree with that. <laughs> it, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to uh, to figure that out, but and and I think that there are a couple reasons that that that, that is, and I, you know I don't really care about getting into a bunch of political views and all of that, but however I'm open to it, you know. But humanity, we all have different opinions, and that's what makes us different. But mm-hmm. So, so as far as identification, right? Because we had a little conversation about identifying earlier. Yeah, we can identify with however we, with whatever we see the world with, right? And that's yep. that's typically how we identify. So, would yeah. you say that you on on a political spectrum, would you identify left or right, or how would you identify yourself politically? Um, I think if you talk to Casey, she would probably say I'm very far left. I would view myself more as a moderate left, um, but definitely um, I, I align myself probably more with uh, the Democratic policies versus like the, the Republican ideology. Got it. And, you know, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm curious what. So when you say that you identify with more. OK, so moderate left, what what type of beliefs or. I guess it would be beliefs, right? Opinions. Yeah. What, what opinions do you have that would make you say that? Um, I think um, my primary, so I, 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 I think there is this, um, and I don't know if necessarily this is more even just conservative or even Republican. I think when we're looking at just our nation as itself has a very individualized way of approaching things. So we look at it from, from an individual standpoint, rather from like a community standpoint. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, um, find myself when I, when I'm, you know, reading up on policies and doing that kind of fun stuff, I just find myself, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm all about like, you know, giving people like, I think healthcare is a right. I don't think healthcare is a privilege. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and just understanding that, that, uh, society at whole has contributed for the betterment of other people. Um, now I think that they, I can't, it can get really complex and complicated and we, you know, especially when you're discussing like the financial component of it. Uh, but I think overall, um, I find myself just caring more about, you know, if somebody else is good versus just making sure I'm good, if that makes any sense. Oh, totally. Yeah. I, I think there's a, I think there's a dis a big disconnect, you know, on, on politics, because I, I do think that a lot of people that, identify as conservative they because i'll be honest most of the most of the people that i'm around or the social media posts that i have i would say there's more conservative 
conversations because I'm friends with more people that are conservatives than I am that identify as liberal. So, and as I see a lot of the conversations happening, you know, on both sides, I, I do think that there are misconceptions that both sides have of each other. I think, Understood, yep. you know, and, and then what ends up happening is when we identify again as a certain, as a certain political, or we have a certain political stance, then we're almost, we have these preconceived judgments and we're almost before there's a conversation that takes place, we're already, you know, standing in our battle stance. We got our shield mm-hmm. and we got our sword. And, and if I walked up to you and you had a shield and a sword and you had your sh- your sword up, I would say, holy shit, I better get my shield and, and sword. And we might even go to battle without even saying a word, you know? And so I think that, and the reason I guess I wanted to ask you is, is I think that you, you come to this conversation with, with a positive attitude and a, and what you're wanting to do is make the world a better place. You're, you're not coming to the conversation one to destroy and wanting to break down and wanting to make, you know, people less than what they are. You're literally what gives you your strength or um, desire to, to make a difference is the fact that you're wanting to do good things. Is that, is that right? Or is that? Yeah, that's a pretty good assessment. I mean, I, I mean, without sounding like someone who's like a saint or anything, I think my overall, you know, I, I, I believe in empathy. I believe in trying to understand um, how, how and why other people do certain things. And there must be a reason because I do believe inherently people are good people, right? I do mean, I think there's a sect of the population that probably is not good, but I think overall the vast majority is good. And I want to emphasize that type of thing, you know, most days. Totally. Totally. And and I see, and and I see that. And, but a lot of times if I have, if I've already judged you, I don't care what you say because to me, I'm going to find a way to make my, my judgment correct. I'm going to justify it. I'm going to say to myself, he's lying or bullshit or whatever it is. So I can keep my, because that identity, because if I'm identifying as a certain way and you oppose that, by you opposing that, you in in my mind are deflating who I am, and so Correct. I can't I can't have that. So of course I'm going to think. Now, yeah, when when we get into like you said the financial, it, all of the details, there are a lot of deviations. There are a lot of there are a lot of ways that you know. There's more understanding than that's out there than I think any of us can grasp, and I yeah. think. I, I guess I don't want to get too far off into that, but the point I wanted to make is that you are trying to do the best with what you know, and Correct. I'm trying to do the best with what I know. And sure. a lot of the posts and a lot of my conservative or liberal, I because I do, I have, I I think I have more conservative Republican contacts than I do liberal, um, yeah. con- liberal, and so uh, Democrats and. And so I see more on this side, but I, I also, I see that everybody's trying to do the best with what they got, but sometimes we just miss the mark, you know? Yeah. Well, I think, I, here's what I think. So I think if we look at it from like an identity, like just breakdown, right? If we, if I want to like, like identify myself, right? I, I am 
a gay drug addict um, who, you know, who is, it is, I, I have many, I, who's mixed. Um, so I have all these preconceived notions of how I'm supposed to think, right? Because each identity has a very distinct way of thinking, right? Um, and especially politically or just like socially, all those type of things. But, so I think one of the most challenging things um, is trying to even navigate the system with the, within those identities. So, you know, like if I being, you know, a biracial person um, don't necessarily agree with some policies that are, you know, whatever, um, seems to, uh, it's hard to kind of explain what I'm trying to say, but if, if I don't agree with something, if it, with what the group, the whole group of my identity believes, that somehow I'm a traitor to that group, right? And I just totally. don't necessarily go with that um, idea um, because here's the thing. I mean, just based on my spectrum and what, what I believe in um, is, you know, um, you know, and I'm a, I'm a pretty big advocate of like, you know, Black Lives Matter and that type of thing. But if I disagree with something like that, then I'm automatically seen as I'm against the movement or to that, you know, but I have a lot of cop friends. Like some of my closest friends are police officers, you know, so I kind of teeter this weird line to where, um, you know, I try to think for myself, you know, and I don't necessarily let my identities dictate my way of thinking. Right. Um, And there's some things that me and my brother disagree on, you know, and he's very conservative, you know, and some things me and him do agree on, you know, Um, but as long as we can have an open conversation and genuinely um, just want the best and i think you hit it right on the mark that everybody comes for their own experience right um it's it, it we cannot pretend as if um you know people aren't making the judgment based on the only thing they know you know like i i grew up how i grew up um i believe that i have been afforded very certain privileges um because of the way i the way i look because i'm very light-skinned i'm you know I, I, and i sound the way i sound right i do not have an urban um uh dialect right um so right. that's offered me certain privileges in, in my life, and I and I recognize those. But um, you know, I, I think overall people just need to kind of uh, not so be gun ho about this is who I am, this is what I have to believe in, because you're going to change. Who I am, who I was at 21, is not who I am now, right? And if I were to go off everything I believed when I was 21 years old, I'd be in a pretty deep world of trouble because <laughs> right. those things are just not the truth anymore. So I can relate. You know, so, yeah. So. You know, it's it's funny. So the 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 whole Black Lives Matter thing, uh, it's interesting because the the viewpoint that I have seen based on my experience mm-hmm. is that I've seen, and whether it has been packaged that way on social media to create conflict or whatever it is, but from what I've seen, there has been a huge political arm of black lives matter that doesn't necessarily enforce the idea of black lives mattering it it seems from my perspective that a lot of what has happened is it's been politically charged and you know in ways of of getting funds to support the the democratic party now again i'll be the first person to tell you that i don't know all the details i know what i read i comprehend what i read I haven't spent a lot of time trying to dig up all of the the nuances and different things that I've heard to to prove it, but but I it's I think it's pretty um, it was it's pretty apparent from what I've seen that that is the case. Um, oh, hundred percent! It's totally been politicized. No, no, I would I don't think anybody would discount that. Um, I think you know there's definitely people on the Democratic side who use it to their advantage, um, and I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing. 
Um, do I genuinely believe like, like Nancy Pelosi really believes that like black lives matter? Probably not. You know, <laughs> right. uh, but she's definitely used that to her for her political platform. Um, and so did a lot of Democrats in this race. Um, but I think when we discuss kind of black lives matter as a whole, um, I really bring it down to what it's really talking about. Right. Mm-hmm. And the biggest argument, and like I said, I have a lot of conservative friends. I have these conversations probably weekly, um, is, you know, there's this idea that, you know, that, you know, at least from my perspective, especially working in social services, is that generally speaking, um, African-Americans are not treated fairly, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Now, I I can go into kind of the specifics kind of surrounding the criminal justice system, you know, and people argue that, you know, they say, well, you know, black men commit more violent crime, and and they they, they do. And the FBI statistics definitely state that black men are the most, they commit the most violent crime in this country. but what I specifically gear towards is just more so how are they treated within that criminal justice system, right? So take away the, the violent crime and just go down to just regular crimes um, that black men are just historically um, sentenced to longer periods of time for the same amount of crime um, for, on an equal crime um, spectrum. So, you know, I think just fundamentally, you know, and, you know, and we can go and I go, hate going down this rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> but, you know, but, you know, it's almost like you, you can't help but go down it because it's, that's, that this is the world we live in. But, you know, I think, um, you know, I, I do believe that there's a thing called white privilege. Now, whether or not that's white people's fault, I don't believe that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do believe and the best way I can define it um, is I would ask any uh, white person um, or somebody that I guess identifies as white. Um, is would you want to be stopped by this? Would you, does anybody, one of those people want to be, want to be a black man for a day? Because we all know that black men, if they, especially by the police, um, are treated a little bit differently. And I can, I can say that from a personal experience, you know, when I get pulled over, um, I had never had to question my safety ever, 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 ever. I've never had to worry about it. Um, I've been treated fairly. They, you know, I, I'm, you know, I've done some pretty bad things. Um, but you know, there's other people when they get pulled over, um, that immediately they assume that they are um, guilty of the crime and they should be handcuffed and guns drawn. So that's ma- that's the fundamentally what they're discussing. Mm-hmm. Now, I think then the, the big argument comes up is, look, well, what about the gang- the black on black crime and the gang violence? Hundred percent correct. You know that's 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 the thing, but that's not fundamentally what that is group is talking about. Um, now, I think over course of the years it's been politicized and now it's turned into something that doesn't necessarily kind of what it really meant to begin with but um you know i think overall um you know i think that's a conversation we need to have you know and uh you know because i would not want to be a black person for a day that is what it, i don't think anybody else would want to either honestly <laughs> so you know so that's just, that's the question i pose to people. right right i you know i remember having a conversation with somebody we were doing a, a film he was helping me on a commercial and yeah. we had made, we were, we were talking about something and he's like, man, you don't know what it's like to be black. And I looked at him like, I'm like, well, well, you don't know what it's like to be white. And, and so, and, and it was the conversation because he had, I don't remember what sparked the conversation, but my, he kind of aggravated me in a way by saying that. And and it was like, well, hold on a second. You can identify however you want to identify. Now, yes, you're black. But what is black to me? I, I'm thinking, okay, is it is it the color of your skin? Is it is it the way that you present yourself? Is it the the ideology or is there a, is there something else about 
black that's not a color, you know, because it's, you know, I can identify as an artist. I can identify as a man. I can identify as a father. I have a million different things that I can identify with. And what we were talking earlier about the problems with identifying is that when you identify as a certain whatever it is, then your mind starts justifying your thoughts. Well, hey, if if I'm a black man, I need to think like this. I need to act like this. I need to say these things. I need to, you know, show this at this particular moment. If I'm identifying as an artist and I'm still black, I'm thinking I need to come up with a creative way to express this thought or this feeling. And as I'm thinking about that, it takes me down a different rabbit hole all in of itself. And so Mm -hmm. if you have, uh, okay, so now here's, here's another interesting thing. And and this I think does contribute to the whole black lives matter and the whole black men and women being treated worse, right? Then let's say a white person. And, Mm -hmm. and that is through is also through the identification because when I'm a police officer and I'm, let's say I pulled you over, you're a black guy. I have my own preconceived notions. Let's say I'm white and you're black and I pull you over. We all have preconceived notions. We all have prejudices. It's, it's not, it's, it's why we're alive. It's, it's from back in the day that we can judge that, Hey, this, animal has sharp teeth it might bite me i'm gonna either go the other way or i'm gonna figure out a way to contain it and you know and then i'm gonna coordinate and i'm gonna bring the other people in my tribe and we're gonna tackle this issue right and what ends up happening is so if again again that's that's kind of the basis like we all have prejudices the the black person in the car is going to have preconceived notions of me. Ah, shit. It's a white cop. This guy's going to mess with me. Right? The the white cop is like, oh, a black guy in a car. And then, okay, they have... And then again, is, is he going to be thinking of statistics? More chances of, of them having a gun? More chances, of, right? And so, is that going to affect the way that they transact the situation? Hell yeah, it is. And that's yeah. a problem, and that sucks. How do you fix it? I don't know. Well, I don't, yeah, I, I mean, don't I think one way to start it is, um, I, I think specifically the situation you're talking about is I think in regards to the preconceived notions that the cop has. So that's based on, um, you know, policies and media coverage um, and all the stuff. Because I believe the same thing. Look, look, here's the thing. If I'm walking down the street and I see, and it's down a dark alley and I see a white guy and a black guy, you know, if there's a white guy on one side of the sh- walking down the same path, I'm probably not going to move out of the way, right? Generally speaking, I'm going to be like, hey, that's just some dude walking down the street. But if I see a black guy walking down in dark alleyway and it's just me and him, I'm probably going to be a little bit more concerned and, you know, just look over my shoulder a little bit, you know? So that that's just a predisposed bias I inherently have, right? Because mm-hmm. that's how I've been nurtured and educated to kind of believe. And, you know, I think the media plays a huge role um, in kind of, um, kind of spinning this narrative, you know, because if you look on even just on, if you watch the news and I took a class and a couple of few semesters ago, um, basically kind of the, the perpetuating the narrative that, you know, the black man is a criminal, right? Because that's all we see on TV. 
Um, you know, because that, that's that's what um, it gets. That, that's what gets the ratings. That's what people kind of want to see, for I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I think we need to start, and, and I do think you're right. I mean, I think you know that the cop's not necessarily at fault in this situation, where it's like he's going to be. He wants to go home to his family. He's going to be on edge. He's going to be, you know, a little bit more concerned. I don't necessarily think that's his fault because that's what he's been taught to believe. And yep. same with the black guy, you know, um, but the black guy has been taught to believe that all whiteies are bad, you know, and all cops are bad, yep. you know, so it, that's, that's, that's cultural. And so I think, I think at some point, you know, we just kind of have to get to a point. I don't think we'll ever get there. Um, that just to say like, Hey man, like nobody's like actively trying to like hurt other people. Well, at least inherently, maybe they are. Um, yes, but maybe some just give, just give each other a break. That's kind of my thing. Like, Sometimes it's so exhausting being so just having to like hyper think about everything all the time, you know, and just, you know, it's like, geez, like we spend more time talking about what could happen than it actually happens, you know? So, um, I don't know. That's kind of my position on that. You know, and and then I I agree with you, dude. And there's, there's another kind of spin that I have on where it's, it's not necessarily about black it, but however, because of media, because of everything, I feel like that is definitely the most politicized, the most, uh, mm-hmm. the most talked about, right? But yeah, from think- from my own personal experience, like I was telling you before, so I lived in, you know, I I grew up in a one stoplight town where mm-hmm. I was related to the majority or to a lot of people in that town, and the majority were, were white and. That's how I grew up, right? And so I didn't see a lot. There was one black family that I knew of and and he was a friend of mine Troy Phillips uh in Wilcox badass dude I moved from there though and into Tucson into Southside Tucson which is predominantly Hispanic right and and there and then I became a minority and so it was kind of a culture shock then um and then as I've gone you know there were a lot of things I got into a lot of fights and it was it was crazy but I figured out Hey, guess what? We're all we're all different, but we're all the same. I joined the military, right? Military is definitely a smorgasbord of every creed and color that you can imagine. Everybody's trying to, yeah. you know, do the right thing and fight their, for their country or maybe they just joined to go to college, whatever it is, but I don't I don't think there's more white or black. I think it's it's pretty pretty scattered evenly. But when I got out of the army. I joined or I, I w- went to the reserves and it was an all black unit. I was literally, there was one white guy and that was me. And that was the first time I'd been in that situation. Right. So it was like, usually it was more Hispanic or, and what I found was that I was getting a lot of funny looks. People mm-hmm. were awkward towards me and it was like, well, hold on a second. Okay. You know what? It's it's not black. It is the only. If you are the only, if you're the only white person that walks into a, a room full of black people, then there's a good chance they're going to look at you like, what's this guy want? And draw conclusions. And and I think I, I, I bring that back to, to the tribal situation. And I feel like, if if me and you were in a tribe and there was some type of situation that was happening, well, we needed to coordinate with each other in order to overcome the situation. In order to mm-hmm. coordinate, we have to be on the same page. So I'm going to be looking for people 
that look like me, that sound like me and think like me. And, and it's, I think it, we're all, we all have that inherent in us that we're looking for people that look like us, that think like us, that act like us. Absolutely. And, and yes, we're all jacked up because sometimes when we are seeking out those people, those people can be the worst ones that we're going to communicate with. And we do jump to conclusions. And I think just the awareness that we all have that inherent characteristic, I think that is is the start of opening up to to find different ways that we can find common ground. Because when we find common ground, then I can look at you as a mixed gay um past felon whatever and i can draw from the differences and i'm not intimidated i'm and i don't look at it as bad i look at it as a different way that i can learn things of of this experience of life yeah no, i agree with you 100 percent, 100 percent. all right well so i so i you know, like and, and like I asked you earlier, so if you could narrow down a particular message, I, I don't know. Is there is there anything else you want to talk about? Is there is there anything that you've been thinking about? What have I been thinking about? Let's see. Um, I mean, I, I, something when Casey kind of asked me this uh, the other day, I was kind of like, you know, like kind of trying to formulate. So I, I do a lot of presentations, kind of surrounding my my story and all that, um, mm-hmm. and kind of one of the things that kind of come up is like what made what made me kind of decide to change my life right um kind of as you were talking i was kind of thinking like you know because i i had so many different identities and i think the biggest culprit for uh, me uh, wanting not not being able to stop using drugs is because it was so wrapped up into my identity um and like i it was got given up this lifestyle um and that was almost harder to give up than the actual drugs itself so it's kind of funny that the topic today was just kind of identity because that was kind of like the main reason I kind of find it challenging to uh, kind of stop using and kind of get my life on track. And when I kind of gave that up um, and like was willing to give that up, like things kind of turned around for me. So, which I'm lucky. I'm very blessed. Very, very blessed. So. Wow. Mm-hmm. And, and you work with people right now. So tell me, mm-hmm. tell me what, let's, let's talk about that for a little bit. What, so you okay. work, you work with people that, what, what do you, who, what kind of people do you work with? Okay. Yeah. So I work with individuals um, who have served a minimum of 10 years in prison on average about uh, the time for people in our housing programs is about 20, 25 years. So we're talking about very, very serious crimes. Um, so most of the crimes that I deal with are going to be second degree murder, um, criminal action, um, pretty violent ones, and also um, most of the sex, of sex sexual offenses. So the child molestations, uh, the rapes, um, sodomies, all that kind of stuff. So. So, yeah. Yeah, and, I, and Fun I, job. <laughs> well, man, I can imagine. I, and you know, we talked a little bit earlier, and and I was telling you that you know that my own personal situations with with that on the other side of you know my little brother being molested and some you know in other situations and how the repercussions of those situations basically have la- lasted my little brother his the rest of his entire life. It it mm-hmm. affected him Absolutely. in, you know, some profound ways that were just, you know, he got into drugs and crime and everything, weapons and gangs and 
and everything as a as a anger management you know he didn't know what to do so he just wanted yeah. he was angry and he was doing whatever was was wrong yeah. and yeah i think one of the th- biggest things is kind of knowing about these people kind of question when what it's like working with these individuals right because again we have these preconceived notions of people who commit you know take it let's take out the sexual offenses because that's a whole nother topic of discussion we could go on five hours kind of talking about that um mm-hmm. but about violent crimes most people who commit violent crimes only do it once um, so most people commit murder, obviously only do it once. Um, and generally speaking, it's never, um, unless it's like first degree, um, but most second degrees are kind of spur the moment, you know? Um, and you know, we're all one bad decision away from being in prison for 25 years, you know? Cause I don't think any, most of my clients that are in my program ever kind of think, yeah, I'm going to commit a murder today. You know, it just kind of the situation happened and you know, they got caught right afterwards and you know, here they are 25 years later trying to rebuild their life. So um, mm. And you know, I'll be honest. Some of the some of the people would like. I would rather work with a murderer any day than somebody who has like a possession of narcotics charge. Any really? Day oh, any day. Yeah, any day. They're just a lot easier to work with. They're generally more. They're more compliant. They have they they have they're they're kind of they got all that out the way. Um, they tend to be a little bit older, um, obviously. Um, but you know, these guys are some of the most empathetic people. And if you if you ever get a chance to like just talk to somebody who's committed something like that. You know, you, you almost question, like, as you, as you see him now, you're like, I just can't envision you doing something like that, right? Because mm-hmm. it's just so far removed from the person they present themselves as. Wow. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's wild, man. It's wild. So, so guilt, I can imagine that is a, you know, so there's another situation. I guess this, this I was going to have a whole, a whole uh, separate podcast on this where so how my little brother died is a guy pulled out in front of him and his motorcycle ran into the guy's truck and then the guy booked it he fled the scene tried to get out of there and uh anyway that was a huge ordeal for my family for over two years and a lot of what i was feeling was you know that guy had a couple drinks. There's been times I've had a couple drinks. And yeah. what if I could have been that person behind the wheel? And yeah. and we all, like you said, we're all, thank God if you are not in prison and hope to God that you never do anything stupid enough that will put you there. But Absolutely. it's all possible. So, um Anyway, there, there's a whole another side of that of that story, but the point is that that you you don't know. And if I was responsible for ending someone's life because of my transgressions, and I saw the impact that that had on their family, their kids, their their whole situation, then. I don't know that I could I don't know how I would deal with that. And I'm sure that a lot of these people yeah, they got to be tough in a certain way to survive, I'm sure in prison for that long, but I would imagine that it would it would do some damage. Oh yeah, I mean a lot of them feel extreme amount of guilt and remorse, you know. Um Oh yeah, it's, it's I, I I can imagine. I mean, doing something like that because I mean, just even thinking kind of what you're saying like if I I've gotten behind the wheel after I've had a few drinks, you know, just luckily I've never hurt anybody else or myself, but you know, uh, 
you know, there's plenty of people that, you know, they're just having a good night. They get behind the wheel. Next thing you know, they've killed the whole family, you know, um, and I, I couldn't live with myself. But, you know, but, you know, they still got to pay the price. And I'm a firm believer that, you know, that we have a justice system for a reason, you know, um, and we got to pay for our mistakes. Um, whether or not we meant to do it or not, it doesn't really absolve um, us from the responsibility of having to pay for that. Um, and I think that most people in prison would are, would agree with that. Um, there's, there's definitely, a, I've seen more people admit their guilt than I've seen deny their guilt. Um, mm. So, you know, a lot of people are, you know, they know what they're there for. They know they deserve to be there, um, you know, and if they could take it back, most of them would. So yeah. you, you help them integrate. What types of, what, what do you have? Do you have like integration? I, I just got, I'm getting out of prison and I come to talk to you. What does that look like for me? What are you going to talk to me about? How are you going to help me integrate? Yeah. So it's going to start way before you come out of prison. I'm going to start dealing with you probably about six months prior to your release. Um, I'm going to go through a whole, um, yeah, but we're going to interview. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get all your police document, your police reports, your court documents, all that kind of stuff. I'm going to make a general assessment on whether or not I think you're fit for our program. But um, once you're released, um, someone will meet you at the train station, one of one of the case management staff. Um, then we'll take you to your apartment. Um, the apartment we provide them fully furnished apartments. Um, we provide them an intensive case management um, uh, services. So what that means is that we have a key, our case managers keep very small caseloads. Um, and you know, we, we're, we're involved in their lives. Um, we do home visits, whether they're there or not. Um, you know, and we just try to work with them throughout their, that's a 12 month program. So we try, and I always tell them, you know, if the point A is them getting out of prison, point B is them being financially independent and living a um, happy, productive life. So we're going to do whatever we need to do with that, that year, um, on an individualized kind of programming, um, to get you to that point. So the apartment that you guys, that they get, how long do they keep, they keep that for a year or? Yeah, they can keep that for the year, and if they complete their program successfully, they can keep that forever. They can sign their own lease with the landlord. Wow, and then they would end up paying their own whatever yeah, the market rate home. is? Or, yep. okay. Yeah, the market rate, yep. Interesting. And then it's kind how, of a neat model. So you had mentioned a word earlier we were talking, recidivism. Yes. And what is that? Well, that's a great question. Um, so there's no actual definition for recidivism. Really? Um, so it's kind of broad. Um, so really, so anytime you read anything that talks about recidivism and so like any like um, journal or anything like, you know, research, they're going to define exactly what it means. But it basically means um, getting reinvolved in the criminal justice system. So it can mean, is it, you know, this is the big question kind of with like uh, researchers is, does it mean uh, going back to prison? Does it mean getting arrested again? Does it mean just getting sent back to prison on a technical violation versus a new case? Um, it can be a wide road. It means just going to jail. So it, it, it basically just means whatever, getting back involved in the criminal justice to that aspect and, and whatever aspect that that person is discussing. So we at my agency um, define it as going back to prison. Um, that's how we define recidivism. So. Got it. That's a simple explanation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so how, how often does that happen? So uh, the, the national average for recidivism is most people who get out of jail have about a 66% chance of going back to prison. So that's really relatively high. Um, here in Missouri, it's a little bit lower, about 52, 54%. Um, so most people who get involved in it, so more than half return back to prison. Um, so that's, it's pretty common. Um, and so that's why a lot of, you know, especially the federal government, there was a couple of things that they started um, a few years ago was the second, second chance act. And now um, this most recent administration did uh, pass the one called the first step act, I think, 
Um, so that's tr- aimed at reducing recidivism through employment um, opportunities and that type of stuff. What would you say would be the number one determining factor of somebody got not going back to, to prison? Someone not going back to prison. Um, what keeps, what's the number one determining factor that, that yeah, keeps them from going back? Um, I think if they can get financial stability, I think that's probably the root cause of recidivism um, and dealing with uh, generally substance abuse issues, which could be tied into financial issues because most people would commit a crime to get money, that type of stuff. So it's really about because currently in our criminal justice system, we have so you go to prison, um, but you're not done with all the all the stigma and the, the stuff that you can't do once released from prison, right? So there's a multitude of things um, that you can't do even after you've completed your sentence, right? So um, most most apartment complexes will not let you rent if you've had a felony. Um, you can't get certain jobs. Um, you may not be able to get certain schools. Um, you have to, uh, anytime you get pulled over, you're liable to get, um, you know, you could just get pulled over um, just because you're a felon if they run your plates. Um, so there's a lot of things that make it hard for someone to stay out and be successful because there's a lot of hoops. Now, whether that's right or wrong, that's not for me to decide. But I think if people want to stay out, um, you know, they have to be very, very set, very similar to me um, on not going back and finding something that finding a passion, um, but also having a people around you that believe that you can do it. Right. So I had, you know, people in my life that said, no, like you can do this, you know. I don't know if they maybe said that to me all the time because I was a pretty terrible person back then. <laughs> uh, but, you know, and, and here's the thing. It also took it took many, many years for them to believe me, um, you know. So, my, you know, I, I mean, I have eight years now and sober and all that stuff. And I would say that probably my family started really believing this was like long term probably about four years ago. Um, you know, and, you know, like, but the, you know, the interesting thing is, is like there was a point where I wasn't allowed in my house. So I would steal. You know, I was a thief, like, if, hmm. and my brother can attest to this, um, is I would just steal anything. Um, and, you know, they so they wouldn't let me inside their house, you know, rightfully so. Um, but, you know, now when I go to my parents' house, like, you know, they let me use their car when I'm in North Carolina, or I can stay at their house unsupervised. You know, they just don't, you know, they it, it's just a completely different world, you know, than what it was eight years ago. Wow. So, that took a long time. And it's interesting because yeah. you, were, you were saying – a lot of your drug use was tied up into your identity that you had at the time. Yeah, yeah, That's, for sure. Well, it, the interesting about my identity was just to like, you know, when I started getting high, well, well, it starts off in high school, right? So I was, I was not very popular. I was obviously the gay kid. Um, and so, you know, I got picked on all that fun jazz. Um, but the minute I started partying when I was 17 years old, all that shifted. Um, and now it became a little bit cool. I got invited to things stuff like that, you know, all because I did drugs. So I took on this identity. I'm going to be the most hardcore drug addict you can find. Mm. Right. In my little town, well, my town here in St. Louis. And I took that, I took that to heart. Um, I mean, I, I was doing heroin. I started, well, so I did meth at 17. Um, I had my first overdose at 18 or 19. Oh, wow. Um, and my first felony, I went to jail all the time. So, I mean, it was just, and then there was also the rave scene back then. I was a big raver. I don't know if anybody's interested about that, but that was like a big reason for me because I just felt like, you know, I was like, oh, the, I'm so tied to the music, but like, you know, the drugs are just making it so much better. But by that point, by the time I was like 26, 27, I missed 
you know, it was no longer an attractive quality to like party all the time. And I was doing it from the moment I got up to the moment I went to bed. And anytime you start doing heroin, you once you start doing heroin, you know, you've reached um, a different level of partying. Hmm. Um, I mean, the people you encounter, the, the it's, it's just not good. It's, it's a very crazy way of like living. So. Well, I know there's really probably not many more things in life that are better than doing a bunch of ecstasy, going to a rave and feeling the music and feeling the love. And I would imagine yeah. all of your, so. yeah, all of your endorphins, your oxytocin, your all, all of your feel good stuff is probably going crazy. And did you ever, did you ever have any bouts of withdrawals from like that, from ecstasy? If you did a bunch of ecstasy and then oh, after I've done a lot of ecstasy, a lot of ecstasy, um, <laughs> not necessarily withdrawal. That's just, and I, I mean, I, I, understanding how ecstasy works and it's like the complete like just drain of serotonin mm -hmm. and out of your brain um like understanding you can't do that all the time right like so i would i was kind of weird like i thought i was like a scientist back then i was like no i'm gonna like really heighten my my um at my uh, ability to release serotonin by drinking a whole lot of orange juice a few days prior taking this thing called 5-htp which are supposed to be like serotonin en enhancers um huh. so i could have the best experience possible right um so I never really went too crazy with ecstasy, um, but I I would mix ecstasy with other drugs. That was like my big thing. So a lot of meth, I would always do meth with it just because, um, you know, they're both methamphetamine, ecstasy and methamphetamine. They're, they're just cousins of each other. So they grow great together. Uh, but, you know, the, the problem is the, the crash um, from, from those is, is complete reduction in serotonin. And so you're completely depressed. And those are the only parts where it was really, really bad when it came to the ecstasy. But I had overall good experience with ecstasy. Um, so I have nothing bad to say about it, but the other ones I do. What was the first time that you tried heroin? Where, what kind of a um, situation was it? Great, great question. So I was 19 years old. I'd already done, like I, like I said, I wanted to be the most hardcore drug addict back then. So I was like, I wanted to try all the drugs, right? I remember trying cocaine and ecstasy and taking pills and all that. And so the kind of next step was heroin. And so I had actually heard, I had a friend who was a little bit younger than me, maybe 18, 17. And he was like, I know where to get some heroin. And I was like, okay, let's go get some heroin. And then we literally did. We drove to this apartment complex um, and I was so nervous and he went and got it. And come to find out years later that what I bought it for was he had inflated the price significantly for the amount we got, but whatever. So if you're listening, you know, I know what you did, but um no, no, that's so I, yeah, we, I kind of, we were in this parking lot in this apartment complex about five, 10 minutes away from my house. And I, I knew that, you know, you could overdose on heroin. So I was, you know, we, we had this little capsule and we did only little, little tiny piece of it. So I really didn't even get high. So like I was done with that pill, but it gave me enough of a feeling um, that I was like, oh, wow, this is nice. Um, and so I did it the next day. And then I did it the next day after that. And then about a week later, um, I didn't have any heroin um, and I was feeling very sick, very, very sick. Um, and so, you know, I called my friend and I was like, look, I think I got the flu. Like, I, I don't know what's going on. He's like, no, dude, you're withdrawing off heroin. Like you need to go get some heroin. You'll feel better. And that's what I did. Um, and I, the minute you take it, the minute you take it when you're feeling like that, um, I mean, seconds, um, you feel hundred percent again. Oh, wow. And so that's how you get stuck into that cycle with heroin. Um, it's because you don't want to get sick. And, so. and then when you stopped, how did, how was that? How did you stop? What was that situation like? I had overdosed so many times. I mean, the first time I overdosed, man, I, uh, I was, I, I can remember this. And this, the problem is I like to mix uh, benzos with heroin, which are like Xanax, Klonopin, Valium, 
um, Ativan, that type of stuff. And I was doing it all day prior to that. And I had actually was, I was at this gas station. Um, and I just asked this random black guy, I was like, Hey, do you know where to give me heroin? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, sweet. And he like took me to go get some and everything was fine. Shockingly, like he could have killed me. Um, but <laughs> I remember, um, the last thing I remember was we were in the car and he got me my stuff and he was like, he asked me if I smoke and he pulls out a crack pipe. And I was like, absolutely love crack. Um, and so he, we, that's, I remember hitting the crack pipe and then waking up in the ICU, um, intubated, um, with, uh, my hands tied to the, the bed. Um, the nurse oh, wow. like saying, she was basically like, you should have died. They, so basically come to story, come to find out is they based the guy I'd, I'd OD'd in his car. He had driven me to the hospital and just left me in, um, the emergency, um, the driveway, you know, for the emergency room, um, and just left. Whoa. So don't, they found me, um, there's an ambulance that was trying to get there, you know, with a, a, clearly a patient in there and they were honking and they did not, and the car wasn't moving. So they came out to look and that's when they found me and they said I was like black and blue. And so they saved my life. And that was the first time. So. Um, there was about four other times that that happened. So as, and as I started ODing more and more, um, I started getting less scared of it. Right. So the last couple of times I OD'd, um, I woke up, um, and I just walked out of the, of the hospital. I just walked out, like took out the IVs, took out, just walked out. Damn. Um, so yeah, cause I was not trying to deal with all that cause it takes so long. And I was like, nah, let's go, let's just leave. So that's what I did. Damn. And yeah. then the last time. It the was from a hair. Was question. it from an overdose? And then you stopped cold turkey. Kind of. Okay. Yeah, kind of. Um, well, so I was on the run. So I need to preface this by saying I was on the run because I was on parole and I hadn't seen my PO. So that was the first problem. Um, and basically, <laughs> huh? I said, uh, yeah, I would say that's a problem. Yeah, yeah, I was on the run. That was a problem. So I was in. Uh, so I was. I I'd overdosed. Um, I at the time I was going. I wanted to become a music producer. Um, and so I, um, uh, had this going to like music production school and basically I, but I was like doing heroin at the same time. So I'd actually OD'd earlier that day. Um, but like not a bad OD. I was, I just kind of went out, whatever. Um, and so I was, I had class that night, which I only went to like every two weeks. And so I showed up to the school and I was talking to this guy and I was like, Oh, I got some heroin. Let's go do some heroin in the bathroom. And so I did. Um, and I went into his bathroom, which was, had a full door. So it didn't have this half stall on um, those, a full door. And, um, I guess I did a little too much. And next thing I know, man, I wake up and there's like, I can hear, I can, I'm starting to kind of come to, I remember the, the ambulance is there and the medics and I can hear them saying, Oh, there's a needle. And so they gave me Narcan and it shot me back to life. And from there, um, went to the hospital. I left the hospital obviously. And then, uh, I was homeless now at this point cause I had nowhere to go. So I went, I tried to go to the psych ward because I knew at least there I could like sleep. Um, so they took me in, I told my suicidal, um, and they released me. Um, and this is the interesting thing about that story is that they'd given me about, they'd give me three prescriptions to Xanax. Why? I have no idea. Whoa. Um, but, but so I, so I was like, this is great, man. This is fantastic. Um, and so I was like, perfect. I can go to Sh uh, Walmart, get $4 prescription. Cause I had like 20 bucks on me. Anyway, um, I lost the prescription on the way to Walmart. Um, and so, um, and I remember thinking like, what, this is like my dream, right? This is like, they never give me this kind of stuff. Um, and I could not find it anywhere, anywhere. Um, so I tried to go back to the psych ward and, um, I said, Hey, I lost my prescription. Can you guys give me another one? They said, absolutely not. Um, and I was like, okay. Um, so then I called my mom 
and I was, cause I was homeless and I was just like, Hey mom, like, I don't know what's going on, but like, this is bad. I'm, I'm in a really bad spot. And she, I don't think she even knew that OD the day before that earlier that night. Um, so she came and got me and she basically put me in a hotel cause I wasn't allowed in the house. Um, and I made the decision. I'm going to turn myself into prison. So, um, the next day they take me to, they took me to get a haircut, got me some food and they drove me two hours away to the prison. And once I got to the prison, they were kind of shocked that I was there. Um, they were like, uh, they thought it was, they, they couldn't figure out if I was like playing a game or something, but they took me in cause I was on the run. So I fell in here more now. And, um, and so with that said, um, I was expecting to do another year or something like that. Um, but about two weeks later, um, they called me, um, and they called me down to the office and they said basically like, Hey, you're going to be released at the end of the week. And so that was probably the most pivotal moment in my life because I really took this like kind of look, um, and said like, okay, Brandon, you have an opportunity here, right? Like if you keep going out, you're going to keep ODing, right? You've gotten so close to death. Um, so many times, like just what do you want to do? And so I, I called my mom and I said, Hey, I'm going to be released at the end of the week. Do you want to put me in a, can you find me a sober living facility? So that way I can try to do this. And she was kind of like, sure. Yeah, whatever. Um, cause by that point, my mom, my parents were just done with me, right? They were just done, but she said, okay, we'll fork out the last $300 to get you into this place. And that's it. Like, if you don't do this, like don't ask us for nothing else. Um, and they said that a million times before, but there was something in her voice on um, that day that um, really kind of shook me that said like, they're kind of done. And that, that was, that was the beginning, um, is I got to the sober house and I got leaked up with very like-minded people, very similar to me with similar experiences. And from there, it's just kind of been one thing after the other. And, you know, I got a, you know, I moved out of the sober living, got a car, um, you know, had a job and then things have just, you know, got a real job and it just kind of went gone very fast for me um so i'm very privileged because a lot of people don't have the same experience as me so yeah i think you are one lucky mofo <laughs> right i do so lucky. <laughs> i'm so lucky uh and I, and I and i know that i know that so well that's know, good uh, yeah like so, i don't i count my blessings because i've been very privileged so as you're talking i'm i'm just thinking like man there are so many roads that you had to travel because of because of the drugs, right? Because of making these yeah. decisions and your identity, and like you had said, that's what led you. And but I got to I, I can't help but think, looking back where you are today, mm -hmm. and you're looking back, do you think that there's anything that could have happened that would have helped you not go that direction? So so looking back, you just yeah. said, you know, put a flag in the road and say, hey, bro. You continue this road, this is what's going to happen, but I have another way. Go this road and things will be different. Do you think that that is possible? And the reason I ask you is because, yeah. look, I'm listening to you. You're, you're a smart guy. You have a lot, yeah. of, a lot of thoughts. You have energy. You have positivity. There's a lot of good things coming from you. And, and there are a lot of people out there like that that are going to make stupid choices and go down the wrong road. And I'm just wondering if somebody like that is is listening to this podcast. Yeah. You know? I think you know, here's my here's my answer to that is I the short answer would be no. Um I think with my personality and my um I, I cuz I mean obviously yeah, like I I have a, I have um a cognitive ability to understand things and everybody, I mean, I, I've been through dare. I'd I knew drugs were bad. Right. There, there was never a time where I was like, Oh, I'm somehow going to be, a, a, you know, 
um, I'm not going to experience all the, the hardship. Like there was part of me that kind of knew this, but if you, and I think people did try to talk to me many, many, many different times. Um, you know, but there was just a part of me that said, no, I'm going to do it this way because I needed to see it for myself. Right. I needed mm-hmm. to kind of go through that to say like, okay, this is why you shouldn't do that. Because even now when someone tells me something, I'm like, okay, well, why? Like I need proof mm-hmm. of what you're saying. Like you can't just say something. Right. <laughs> and when it came to me, it, you know, I, I don't know if I necessarily didn't envision, I, if I envisioned myself, excuse me, um, like becoming like a full on, like just drug addict for the rest of my life. Like, I don't think I did. Cause I still had dreams and I still saw myself as like having a real job and like a normal life. But it just, the problem was, it was just, I never really like stopped to think like, Oh, like you, you probably shouldn't do this. Like, cause I just thought I was going to be young forever. And I think that's one of the big things is that people start doing drugs when they're young and they just kind of, they don't necessarily see the future. Right. And so the time, but, and so with me kind of happened all of a sudden, I started doing it drugs at 17. Next thing you know, I'm 26 and I'm like, well, sh- crap, you know, <laughs> like, so like there's eight years of my life gone. So that was the big issues that I don't think anybody really could have told me anything. I, my personality type is, it is what it is. And, you know, um, but I did hear it, but this is why being sober has helped me is because I'm very hard headed. And, you know, once I set my mind to something, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it to the extreme. Right. So mm-hmm. I said, all right, well, I'm sober now. So now we're going to be sober. And, you know, I've, I've never really went back and thought like I'm missing anything. Cause I've seen everything you want that I've ever wanted to see in that world, everything, you know, but you know, there's people now that have never, have never, who don't even believe that that's some, somebody I used to be, you know, that was funny. I have a cop friend who actually sent me all my mug shots because, you know, they can pull it up on their computer. Um, and there's like 25 of them. Um, and wow. you know, I showed it to some people, um, and they were just like, I can't believe that's you, you know, because that's just not, that's not who I am anymore. And they've never seen that part of me, you know? So yeah, it's kind of wild. So for people that are struggling in a situation, there's always hope. There's always the other side. Mm-hmm. You can always change your situation. And I think a big purpose of this podcast, the move podcast is, you know, move. It's not going to happen by itself. You got to move. And if you can make a difference in other people's lives, you know, the M make a difference, which is what you're doing right now. It it helps you. If, if you can offer up your time, talents and gifts. So the, the fact that you can comprehend things, the fact that you have energy, the fact that you can relate, you are giving that and giving of your time and an under an overarching thing that I've been hearing from you also is your gratitude, your appreciation. You're you said a couple of times you're very blessed. You're lucky that that yeah. ability to to think about that and reflect, I believe, is a reason that you've had success. And then E is to encourage others. And I feel like that word move is so profound in so many different ways and. People move because of love. They they love people mm-hmm. and it makes you move. And people love to be moved. Agreed. You do things Agreed. and it's and it's an expression of the universe, in my opinion. You know, just it's art, it's passion, it's and and that unlocks doors that we don't know about until we do it. And you you know anyway, there's there's a lot of things that I could talk to you about and ask you a bunch of questions and and I feel like we've covered a lot of ground you know from identity to 
Black Lives Matter to uh, yeah. to drugs and and situations, and you definitely have an interesting story. And a lot of shit has happened to you, unfortunately. But what makes it okay is the fact that you've learned from your experiences and you're using it to propel yourself. And I, and I, I have a lot of respect for you and, you know, either, even if you do differ politically than I do and, you know, (laughs) it's all good, man, because again, we're all just doing what we think is best for our families and for our, for our people, for our community, for our, and so, you know, sometimes there's going to be disagreements. Absolutely. But absolutely. This was great, man. Cool. I am I'm happy that Casey brought us together, man. And if 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 there's anything else, uh, you know, if somebody's struggling in a certain way or, you know, would you want them to reach out to you or is that like is that something so let's say somebody has I mean, I don't know. Do you deal with people that have that are recovering like that have been on heroin or is there I I mean, I don't know. I was I guess Usually when I'm have some have a guest here, it's like, you know, I had somebody here for uh, Lyme disease and they're like, yeah, you can reach me at this point if you have questions or stuff like that. But, you know, yeah, I think for you, this is a, you know, just sharing your story. It, it'll it'll touch some people out there and hopefully open a little open a couple people's eyes. Um, yeah. And I don't know. You have anything else to say? No, man, I think this is good. This is great. Thanks for having me, man. Awesome. Well, All right. in that case, I'm going to thank Casey again whenever I see her. And for anybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you have any suggestions, questions, you want to pick my brain, you want to pick his brain, uh, you know, throw it down. Let's see. Let's Let's start a conversation. Maybe we can make the world a better place. And until next time, see you later. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. All right. Cool, Brandon. Well, thank you, man. And yeah, we'll get off the phone and we'll we'll stay in touch through Casey, I guess. So, okay. Have a great day, man. You too. Bye. (laughs) All right.